Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, I'll actually be reading a speech that I gave last year um, in honor of Marily Franco, the Brazilian activist who was murdered in cold blood um, in 2018. Um, this particular speech was one that I did for the People's Forum. It's available online for anyone who's interested. But because I was unable to record something during the week um, of her actual death, uh, that happened this year, the, the commemoration thereof. Um, I wanted to go ahead and just put this in the system to have on the podcast for anyone's listening pleasure if you're interested. Um, I also can provide uh, any links or you know information from the speech if anyone is interested. Just shoot me a DM on Twitter or Facebook. Um, you can also email me or message me, excuse me, on Patreon uh, for Left PC. While I'm speaking about Patreon, I should just mention that um, I really wanted to say a big thank you to anyone who's continuing to contribute to the Patreon, especially considering the circumstances, um, including those of my own. Um, So I can definitely empathize with those of you who are going through a financial crisis right now amid the coronavirus um, epidemic. And I appreciate and very much value the contributions that those of you who've been able to do so have made. I also just wanted to give a big major special thank you, uh, thank you and shout out to anyone who has been supporting the podcast this whole time that I've been in maternity leave technically even though I'm still recording um, I really appreciate it and you know by support I mean anything from financial contributions to telling a friend neighbor family member uh, colleague about the podcast so again Richard and I both very much appreciate that Uh, Another note, really quickly before I read this speech, was just to comment on the fact that there may be some weird noises in the background. It's because I just had a kid, so um, my baby may make some weird noises in the background. I also have her sound machine on, um, which is like a rain setting right now. So you may hear some strange sounds. Don't be disturbed by them. My apologies in advance if they end up being distracting in any way. As I mentioned, if you need any of the links or um, the speech itself, please just give me a message, send me a message, and I will send it your way happily without any issue. Um, So on that note, I wanted to get started. As I said, this was a speech that I gave in 2019 with regard to Marily Franco's untimely murder and death um, in Brazil. And I gave this speech at People's Forum in New York City, uh, which is unfortunately right now going through an inter- a really terrible time with regard to coronavirus. My heart goes out to people in New York right now in particular, um, considering everything that's happening. As someone who was a longtime resident of New York and who recently, you know, over the past few years moved to Baltimore, um, but as a person who frequently goes to New York or went to New York um, until this, this virus became a major problem, um, I definitely have a special place in my heart for the city and its residents, and I'm praying and hoping that you know, things will turn around soon and that the we, that we can see a slowing of the deaths. Um, it's really disturbing to see the way that hospitals have been hit uh, so heavily by this virus and the way families and, um, you know, people have just been dealing with the tragedy of, of loss, loss of life, loss of income, 
um, loss of livelihood in general, loss of in a, of a sense of yourself um, in large part because you're having to stay inside. And I know that you know New York has such a vibrant city culture that staying inside and just being alone at home or you know, not being able to go out and enjoy the culture and the food and the sights and sounds of the city can be really depressing in and of itself. And also just despite the fact that New York has the reputation of being kind of a cold place, I recognize that the kind of amalgamation of cultures um, over time has really made it a profoundly, um, you know, just dynamic place. And I think if there's anything that we can look at the situation and say, uh, without a doubt, it's that New Yorkers will find a way to come through this on top. Um, and I think we'll fight hard to really support one another and help people. Um, we saw this in, in response to 9-11 in large part by New Yorkers. Um, ironically, a lot of the vitriol that came out after 9-11 was uh, started and, and you know kind of perpetuated by people who didn't live there. Uh, but what I think a lot of New Yorkers, at least the majority of them, can attest to is that following such local tragedies, people tend to, despite the negative stereotype about behaviors in the city, they tend to come together and help one another. And I hope that in light of this crisis, we can see more of that, not only in New York, but elsewhere. Um, so again, many thoughts and hugs and you know, extended support to friends, family, colleagues, and just people who are listening to this, who live in New York and who are dealing with this also goes to California and Seattle, um, Washington State in general. Um, we are going to have a discussion about uh, coronavirus and some of its historical connections and the implications of uh, what we've seen happening pretty soon. So just be on the lookout for that. I'll also be checking in with Richard about his situation um, because he lives in Washington State, as many of you all know who've listened to us, um, which has been which has been one of the epicenters of um, coronavirus infection and um, just spread of the, the virus uh, for a while now in the U.S., one of the earliest states to be hit by it. So I'll be checking in with him. Um, I'll be checking in with him about that issue, but also just having a discussion um, with an expert, if you will, uh, about the situation and um, some of its, its historical implications. So with that said, let me begin the speech. I'd like to dedicate this speech to Marieli Franco's daughter, Luyada, who reminds me so much of what I saw in Erica Garner, and whom I have no doubt will continue to be outspoken in her fight for justice. I had trouble writing this speech at first because there were so many things moving so fast this week, but when I stepped away from all the news coming out of Rio, I was able to reflect on some of the elements of Marieli's life and work that remain solid and that I hope to convey today. I want everyone to think back for a moment not of this past week, but this past year. The question so frequently repeated was, who killed Marielli? Quem matou Marielli? It became a hashtag. It became an article title. It became a slogan. Likewise, quote, who ordered Marielli's murder, end quote, followed. These questions were everywhere, so much so that Marielli herself was somewhat lost. We already knew who killed her. We already knew who ordered her murder. It was the same forces that continued to murder environmental activists, members of the Movimento Sin Terra, poor black people in the favela, indigenous groups protecting their land. The same forces who murder trans women in cold blood in the street. It's the same forces who murder women like Sandra Bland and Berta Cáceres. The forces that made it impossible for women like Marieli to be here today with us are the ones that she so bravely spoke out against. 
those who uphold the power structure in which women like her, poor, black, and queer, are deemed disposable, and those whose power remains intact because far too many people are complicit in maintaining it. This power structure is upheld by the United States, with this imperialistic violence around the world, including in Brazil, where its intelligence forces train death squads and its politicians and mainstream journalists back candidates who prefer to rain bullets down on its most vulnerable populations instead of seeing them as human. It's also certainly upheld by the Brazilian oligarchs who present in their infinite privilege and who persist, excuse me, in their infinite privilege and prefer to be the lapdogs to the U.S. so long as it means that their power goes uninterrupted. I heard a black Brazilian feminist once say, quote, how can we have equality in a nation where even the middle class refuses to scrub their own toilets and wash their own underwear? In other words, how can Brazil get close to equality when those with economic power and racial privilege maintain the top-down social structure that has been in place since slavery, in which black women exist in their minds only to serve their needs. People like Marielle chose to challenge this structure, and it's important that we remember the central tenet of her work. In so many articles about Marielle in Western papers, I've seen an emphasis on who she was as a person, the many identities she represented, but much less about her radical politics and the way she saw her identity as a poor black bisexual woman as a driving force behind her empathy and support for so many people. Her experiences growing up and throughout her short life motivated her every move, right down to her choice to advise and later run for office as a member of PSOL, the Party of Socialism and Liberation. She was asked once in an interview why she would be part of such a party, knowing the problems of sexism that persist even on the left, an issue we commonly discuss in the U.S. as well. She responded by saying, quote, PSOL is not disconnected from everyday sexism. Bessol has sexists in office, and they are going to hear this whether they want to or not. But the party made three fundamental structures available for all women's campaigns, including mine. Financing, advocacy, and an online platform to raise funds for our campaigns. But it's obvious that when a woman shows up, it makes sexists uncomfortable. It makes them afraid. This is without a doubt. This is the discomfort they feel when losing a place that is considered just for men. End quote. In the same interview, she goes on to detail how she wanted to do more to reach out to poor voters, particularly people lived, who lived in the favelas. She said, quote, We're trying to break away from what might be easier. We're putting pamphlets in Mare, the favela where she was born and raised, and not just Centro. We want to be with the people. End quote. And it was through this connecting with the people that Marielle became so important. She spoke up for those whom society saw on a daily basis had cleaning their homes, raising their children, making their food, and guarding their property, but ignored. She was critical of both the political right and center in their constant attempts to silence and disenfranchise the poor, right up to her untimely death. She was murdered for being outspoken, for daring to represent the victims of the police and affiliated militias, and for speaking out against the military's occupation of Rio, which continues to inflict terror upon the poor as we speak. Every day, Another Marielle and Anderson is murdered at the hands of these forces, and we don't know their names. And in what I consider a parallel problem, we in the United States, as well as in Brazil, don't know so many names of the people, especially black women, who are active in their communities and seeking to change conditions of poverty, neglect, state terror, and intense forms of racism and sexism. One thing I've noticed during my research in Brazil is that the names of local women doing this work are mentioned less. 
This is getting better, but in my opinion, it is still a problem that more people in Brazil seem to know who Angela Davis is than someone like Teresa Santos, a black woman communist who, during Brazil's military dictatorship, went to live and work in Angola and Guinea-Bissau in solidarity after their populations defeated Portuguese colonialism. It's equally as frustrating that Brazilians might be more familiar with the work of Rosa Parks than, say, that of Tomazia Teixeira, a woman's education advocate and columnist at the paper, the black paper, excuse me, Progresso, who in 1930, or excuse me, in the 1930s wrote, quote, women have proven that they are not only created for the recesses of the home. In the past, a black woman's life was relegated strictly to the space between the living room and the kitchen of their masters. Never again, end quote. What does it say about the degree to which black women are further marginalized, even within black Brazilian history, and what can be done not only to recover and take pride in these histories, but to have them become common information. To understand the work that these women have done and for Brazilians to recognize themselves within it, what needs to be done? This year's shows for Carnival attempted to fill in some of those gaps. Samba school after Samba school in Sao Paulo and Rio, most notably Rio's 2019 Carnival winner Samba School Mangueira, sought to recognize the histories that go untold in the mainstream but that black and indigenous people have worked to keep alive in as many ways as they can. And while Carnival for Black People has subversive roots and has long served as a way to critique institutional and de facto forms of oppression in Brazil, this year's performances were of particular significance because they told, precisely because they, they told the histories of groups of people under grave threat in proportions that rival the period of the military dictatorship. We also see the expression of this history in many ways in the new group of black women who've run for office and won in the past few months. They've run for local, state, and federal office, overwhelmingly for parties on the left like the Communist Party, the Workers' Party, and the Party for Socialism and Liberation, to which Marielle belonged. These are women like Aurea Carolina Freitas de Silva, Andrea de Jesus in the state of Minas Gerais, Monica Francisco and Taliria Petroni of Rio, and Erika Malonguinho of Sao Paulo. Almost all of these women credit Marielle for inspiring them to run for office, many for the first time. And they work in the footsteps of, or directly alongside, other black women who've reshaped the left in Brazil in immeasurable ways. They are contemporary echoes of black women who came before them, such as Representative Benedita da Silva of the Workers' Party, with whom I'm incredibly honored to share this stage, who was the first black person and woman to be the governor of Rio and Teodosina Rosario uh, Ribeiro, who was the first black woman city council member and later state representative for Sao Paulo, for the only recognized opposition party during the dictatorship. Then there's Lacey Brandel, a singer who became the first woman songwriter for Mangueira, the samba school that I mentioned earlier, and who later became the second black woman after Teodosina to be a state representative in Sao Paulo. As a member of the Communist Party of Brazil, Brandão fights for socioeconomic, racial, and gender justice. She remains in office and was recently honored by Mangueira in this year's Carnival, which in addition to its recognition of Black and Indigenous history, also honored Marielle and featured her partner, Monica Benicio, who's with us today. This new term of women legislators also follow after the work of women like Olivia Santana from Salvador in the Northeast, who went from becoming who went from being a cleaning lady at a private high school to getting her degree in education. 
Olivia went on to be elected into onto city council where she fought for racial equality, the implementation of black history education in schools, and founded the Day Against Religious Intolerance in response to the persecution of Afro-Brazilian religions. This went on, this act, excuse me, went on to inspire a federal law of the same type that went into effect in 2007. And of course, I cannot forget the illustrious Lelia Gonzalez, uh, the black and indigenous feminist scholar who was one of the co-founders of the United Black Movement, part of the National Council on Women's Rights, and who ran for state and federal office immediately following the end of the dictatorship. While I focus primarily on black women in politics, it's worth noting that for many black women, the line between daily life and politics is blurred. Politics for us does not always occur in formal spaces. On the contrary, many of us have had to find ways to work beyond formal systems and institutions in order to survive. Black women have written for local papers, they've led food drives, they've cared for other people's children when they were unable to. They've fought land speculators and organized against police violence. They've registered people to vote. They've challenged structure after structure when they were told they had no right to exist, and they did so many times outside of formal politics. Marielle was acutely aware of this reality. On the night of her assassination, she was speaking with a group of young black women at an event about this very idea, about moving structures and pushing beyond the limitations set for so many of us by the capitalist social hierarchies that uphold white supremacy, economic, racial, and gender inequality, and countless other forms of oppression. Marielle knew and understood the need to see the power we have within all of us. And the people who murdered her understood that power too. They acted out of fear that Marielle, whose radical politics inspired countless others, posed a dangerous challenge to the illegitimate power they cling to by the most violent means necessary. So while these violent forces work to kill women like Marielle every single day, some with bullets, others with austerity and neglect, their stories rarely told, remember that she would have fought for their lives. If she were here with us today, she'd be fighting for them to be seen and to be heard, for them to be nurtured, and for them to survive in what is a long, ongoing struggle with no end anywhere in sight. Thank you. So that was my speech, um, as I said, for the commemoration of the death of Marielle Franco back in 2019. Her death was in 2018. Um, and I think while, you know, it's kind of difficult for us to look at the current situation, including, by the way, uh, in a situation that's ravaging Brazil's poorest communities right now, this issue of disease um, and a response to the virus that has involved neglect and draconian measures uh, that were enforced, that are enforced by the police and local governments. I think it's important for us to really consider what the legacy of someone like Marielle means in these times, particularly as organizing seems to be a pretty much impossible feat at the moment because we cannot have physical contact, or at least we are advised highly against having physical contact with one another. I think when we look to the work of people like Marielle, it's always involved going against the grain and kind of thinking of alternatives to the standard and to the status quo in terms, in, even on the left, right, um, in terms of ways that we respond to crisis and help those who are around us who need our help the most and who also, of course, um, and this goes without saying, deserve the right to sovereignty and autonomy over um, what happens in their lives and their rights. And I think it's important um, as we think about this moment in time to also consider what other people are going through, not just our own individual island, right? Because I think sometimes we get the sense that we're all in this alone, um, and especially right now when we're literally living in, in social isolation from one another. Um, I think it's very easy to get 
caught in a headspace where we think there's no solution to this, there's no way around this, and things are going to get much, much worse before they get better. And I don't mean just about the virus, but I mean socially. And I think what we can do in reflecting on that and thinking about um, ways to handle crisis and ways to, to advocate for those who need it the most, one of the things we have to do in that process is always be selfless, um, to think of others first, to put our needs in one place, but then also to understand the ways that our skill set and knowledge and backgrounds can be useful for others and how we can serve as resources to help others. One of the things um, that I've thought about a lot with regard to this podcast is just right now how necessary it is to have um, some sort of alternative to just talking about the virus and just talking about this really dark news. And also just, um, I think the the concern over what the government might do or what Trump is not doing right or whatever. I think sometimes watching this information can be overwhelming for us. Um, and I think it's the job of people like podcasters, like people who have um, websites and news sources and whatever, people who are activists, whatever your skill set may be, to come together, even if virtually, to really make sure that we provide uh, resources for people. And um, while I don't have any health-related resources, unfortunately, at the moment, though, I certainly can look those up and try to provide things. Um, one of the things that I had emphasized back when Trump was elected was that we have to think about um, our current society as sets of communities. And we have to think about what we can do in these moments of crisis to sort of triage um, for our communities. One of the suggestions that I had made back in the day was, you know, understanding that there were going to be severe health care cuts, severe cuts to SNAP and WIC benefits and things like that, is that we would have to be operating on our own within our communities as alternative sources of aid. We would have to engage in a type of mutual aid that wasn't even necessarily monetary, but that was a way for us to put our skill sets together and resources together to help people who did not have them. So the example I had given was, you know, if you have access to prescription meds somehow, if you have access to food, if you have access to all sorts of, you know, toiletries, other re any sort of like material resource to provide care for people who will be losing it. I think right now, in this particular crisis, because we're limited in terms of social impact, or in, in terms of, excuse me, social contact, one of the things we need to do is really make sure that we're reaching out to people we know, reaching out to to people that maybe we don't even know, but through social media, um, through other means, through even letter writing campaigns or something. We need to make sure that we're reaching out to people whose, whose voices we're not hearing right now um, and who we may not be seeing at the moment, but who definitely need our help. I think, for example, of the elderly who are, are particularly at risk right now, although certainly, you know, this virus can affect anyone of any age. Uh, but we've seen that people with compromised immune systems and who are up in age, who are elderly, uh, you know, have a greater risk of contracting and even dying from the virus. In light of that, you know, check in on people you know who are elderly. Check in on people whom you know have had, um, you know, Im who have immunocompromised um, health conditions uh, or who are immunocompromised, excuse me. Check in on them. See what you can do. If you're going to the grocery store, if you're going to buy something, if you're planning on, you know, I don't know, doing something nice in your own home, think about ways you can extend your own sort of uh, resources and your personal relationships through these means and finding ways to help others. I'd seen a, uh, a project, a little group project that was going on of teenagers in New York, I believe, who were going around and doing grocery shopping for the elderly and leaving the groceries at their door. 
Um, there are things like that that we can do to sort of help mitigate um, just the personal the personal effects of this crisis. People just knowing that there's someone out there who cares about them goes a long way. But if we can provide material resources in the process, then that makes things even better. And I'm sure some of you are listening to this right now and again saying like, how does this connect to Marielle? Like, you know, what is this? What is the connection between the two? But I think it's important to make those connections um, because it just is about understanding that we can be our own advocates. We don't need to wait on the government to speak for us. We don't need to wait for the status quo to all of a sudden include us. And I think people like Marielle and the work that she did as you know, serving as a voice for people who had been oppressed for so many decades, centuries, in fact, and who were dealing with ongoing state violence and um, oppression. I think the fact that she was able to work through these systems and around these systems to continue to advocate for these people, um, it, it should it should serve as a role. She should serve as a role model for us, and her work should serve, should serve as a model for us for what we can do when we feel like we're helpless, right? Because I think this situation definitely has some people feeling like they're helpless. And I think looking at the work and the life of people like Marielle and what she meant to her community and many communities far beyond Rio and far beyond Brazil, um, what she meant to those people, how we can ourselves embody that spirit. Um, and do as much as we can for the communities that we're a part of, and then encourage others to continue to do work for the communities they too are a part of and many, many communities beyond. Um, again, you know, this this speech I wrote uh, in 2019, and um, I planned on presenting it for the podcast back in earlier March, mid-March actually, which is around when she was murdered. Um, but because of life circumstances of my own and with everything going on, I was not able to get to recording it until now. Um, but as I mentioned before, if you are interested in learning more about Marieli Franco, if you're interested in learning more about the people that I mentioned within the speech, um, feel free to contact me. I'll also put some links in the show notes for those of you who um, look at the show notes so you can learn more about the women that I mentioned in the speech. Um, and, you know, just in these moments, keep your heads up, really keep your heads up. Do what you can to be positive and, you know, as I mentioned a thousand times already, see what you can do to help others. If you are able-bodied um, and able to, if you have resources, if you have some means that you can assist others with, do so. Um, and I don't mean, by the way, I'm not saying go to Target every day and, you know, like endanger yourself um, or put workers at risk and things like that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is when you are doing something, if you are venturing outside of your home for some essential good, ask around. See if others need something too. See if neighbors, friends, elderly, family members, whomever need something and find ways to get it to them um, that protects both their safety and yours and their health and yours. Um, because we're going to really... I mean, I think just watching press conferences and news on a daily basis, it's just a very, very clear reminder that we're on our own right now. And I think that we have to form an alternative to what we see the government doing. Um, we have to kind of find a way to help each other um, because it's going to be a very long time before I think we fully see our government as it currently stands, at least um, doing anything to, to really help people. Even the stimulus package is one that largely benefits banks and big business more than it benefits the average uh, American citizen, much less, you know, God forbid, if we're thinking about people who are immigrants, who are in detention camps right now at the border or elsewhere in this country, um, people who are on, you know, in war-torn environments that the U.S. has 
put in that position. There's so many different situations where these sorts of stimulus, quote unquote, stimulus packages are neglectful and our government is intentionally neglectful. And we have to find ways to go against that kind of neglect and to help people where they need it um, and to be thoughtful of others and to anticipate what may be next. Um, and when I say that, I mean just keeping in mind how things have progressed and how quickly they've progressed. Um, and we have to think of alternatives to protect ourselves, not only with regard to providing resources, but to protect ourselves from state terror, which is something that Marielle herself you know, she went against, she bucked the system in terms of going against state terror vocally, um, and it cost her her life. And so we have to be, we have to kind of take on that sense of, um, you know, urgency to help others. And we have to understand the consequences and we have to be willing to sacrifice in order to protect our communities. Because I think in light of everything that's going on, things are about to get really, really real if they haven't already where you live. Um, and I think in, in many ways, um, we'll see local and federal officials responding in through methods that are not always the most ethically sound. Um, and, you know, we just have to be mindful of that and think of alternative ways to help one another and support one another to prevent um, what surely will be further casualties and, and um, you know, I think subsequent consequences of this virus that go far beyond the virus itself. We have to be vigilant in terms of keeping abreast of what those are and finding ways around them. So with that said, thanks everyone for listening. Um, you can keep up with the podcast and the project itself by just typing in left POC and that's L E F T P O C on any of your, um, you know, social media networks or so Twitter, Facebook, you can also find us wherever you get your podcast. So that's SoundCloud, iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify. You can also find us on YouTube. Um, I post the videos of video version of the podcast. Um, so you can visit us there, find uh, podcasts and share them through YouTube. Um, and of course, as always, you can go to the Patreon page and that's patreon.com slash left POC where you will find free resources, all of our podcast episodes and everything for free. Always, always, always. But of course, we happily accept your donations and are very, very grateful and thankful for those of you who've been able to contribute a dollar or more to this project every month. So again, with that, thank you so much. Everyone, please be safe out there. Protect yourself, protect protect yourself, protect your community. Look out for one another. And um, we're going to make it through this. Anyway, until next time. Bye.